This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Rob Tombrella, pastor at Grace Church. And get your Bibles and turn in your Bible to the book of John. If you're brand new to the Bible, that's the fourth book of the New Testament. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome you all. Be sure before you leave here today to go check out Compassionate Christmas. Husbands, if you uh, have a debit card or credit card or check, buy your wife a, a good Christmas gift from that. You, you'll find some good stuff there. Um, there's also some women in the church that can help you. I'm a guy that understands and knows what it means to, to need help. Guys, don't ask your buddy what you should buy your wife for Christmas. I did this, I think, our second year of uh, of marriage, our for our second Christmas or something like that, as I I recall, and I've been given permission to share this story. I went to uh, buy my wife a Christmas gift, and I thought she was just going to love this. I thought it was the perfect match for her. Um, I went to my buddy and I asked him, what do you think about this idea? He's like, oh, she's going to love it. This is fantastic. And we, well, I'll go together with you to go purchase it. So we went together. And which was another bad idea. So we go together and we're, we're like looking at all the items and, and we get this, we get this gift and I start another bad idea talking it up to my wife as this great, the best gift she's ever going to get. This is so good. Now guys, if you start doing that with your wives, what they're thinking is something that sparkles and glitters. Okay. Which wasn't what I was thinking. So, uh, She gets the gift. We're at her parents' house. It's Christmas morning. I have talked this thing up for weeks, and my friend has talked it up for weeks as well. And with anticipation, with this great package of wrapped and all that stuff, my wife opens up, uh, and to her her surprise and and defeated look, uh, a neck massager from Walmart. That's right. Now, I'm not, you know, that might be the deep Christmas gift that would just bless you this year. So I'm not dogging neck massagers, but this was an awkward looking one, even to pull it out. It's just this knobby, weird <laughs> gift. And in that moment, my wife could not fake happy. She, she, I could tell, I knew, she, I just, I let her down. I had failed on the Christmas opportunity. And so for, you know, young guys, just know that you're going to do this. You're going to fail. You're going to buy a gift. And it's just going to, it's just not going to go the way that you go. Take a girlfriend with you shopping. Uh, don't take your buddy with you shopping. Um, I learned something that Christmas, and I've learned similar lessons from Christmases after that. Um, I'm free to fail with my wife. Because I failed her at times like that where I've just bought the gift that she wasn't looking for and take it back and get the right gift, etc. But I failed her in far greater ways. My wife has seen me at my worst. She's seen me fail by lying to her. She's seen me fail when I've yelled at her. She's seen me fail when I've deceived her. She's seen me fail when I, when I haven't protected her like I should, or are planned for her appropriately, or things like that. And, and over the course of the years, which we're going on 12 years now, um, there's been a confidence that has been built up and a level of trust where I'm actually free to fail. She knows me, and I know her, and there's this 
trust factor in which I can freely risk something and give something to her, not really sure if she's going to love it or not, and she's, she's going to respond graciously to me. And, and there, there's that level of relationship where risk is okay, and I can step out in faith and trust that she's going to love me no matter what I do. And something happens when we understand that somebody loves us no matter what we do. Have you ever realized that as a kid that, wow, you know, and it comes at different times for kids. Sometimes it's easier for some kids than others, I think. But when you, when you have some, some words spoken over to, over you that says something like, no matter what you do, I'm gonna love you no matter what. No matter what happens, I'm still going to love you. I might not be happy with what you choose or what you do, but I'm still going to love you. Something happens when you get that on the inside of you. You want to please, and there's just this level of trust, and you can take risks of your affection with that person when you know that there's that confidence, when you're free to fail. Do you have anybody in your life that you're free to fail? You're free to be yourself. You're free to be goofy or to make the mistake or to buy the dumb gift, knowing that that love is not going to go anywhere. What we can often find at the human level and at the horizontal level, we fail to find with God. What is God like when we fail him? How does he respond when we mess up, when we don't get it right, when we just fail. And what, what is God like when we don't just kind of miss a quiet time, but when we really blow it? You know what I'm talking about? Men, when you just looked at pornography... Ladies, when you started to go down a road in your mind that you never thought that you would go down because the relationship has hit some rough waters. Or fill in the blank. There's any number of things that we could bring into the thought bubble of shame. Of, of Man, this, this brings so much shame to, to, to think about. And what is God like when I've done that or when I do that? What is he like when I fail? I'm going to look at a story today of a person who failed God. He failed his mentor. He failed his leader. He failed his teacher. Yes, but that was God. He failed God. And when he failed God, not only was the relationship suffering and severed and broken and marred, but a dream died. He had a calling from from God, and, and this, this calling, when he failed, God just died in his heart. And we're going to see that God shows us in this passage what he's like when we fail and fail hard. So we're going to read the first 14 verses of chapter 21 and pray and get started. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. And Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. 
Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to them, Children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And so they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And that disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. And when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard, and he hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Father, we thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he died, really and truly died, that he was resurrected and, and that he appeared and poured his spirit out on the church so that we can know you, so that we can be united to you. We have all turned our backs on you. We are all corporate failures. We have all, every single one of us individually said no to you. We've said no to a relationship with you, but you have kept coming after us in Jesus Christ. And you've poured your whole life out to restore us into a relationship with you. And we celebrate that this morning. Give us eyes to see this grace. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus is freedom for failures. He is freedom for failures. Um, This week I tweeted the sermon title, Hope for Failures, or something like that, and I said, bring a friend, and had a couple of people ask, what are you doing? Are you calling my friend a failure? In a way, I am, because you are, and I am, and your friend is, and if you're a guest, I don't mean to offend you, but you are. You have Walked away from God. That's the story of the Bible. The first man that God created walked away from God. His name was Adam, and we're Adam's grandkids, and we've all walked away from God. And Jesus shows us the way back to God. Jesus shows us how people who have failed him get back to God. And the rhythm of the story goes like this. In the first three verses, Jesus lets his disciples fail. In verse 4, he shows up. This is grace, verse 4. He just shows up. And from 4 on, he starts reversing everything. So that's kind of the rhythm. This is, this is how grace works in our lives. He lets us fail. Jesus shows up and he starts reversing things. So let's look at how he lets his disciples fail. Notice after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It's important for John that we see Jesus' intent to reveal himself over and over again. It wasn't once or twice, and it wasn't in front of one person or two people. It was again and again and again. And so in this case, here he is again revealing himself to the disciples. He reveals himself in this Way So every single time that he reveals himself, he's showing us things about his character, not just one or two or 
four things, but 400 things about his character. Jesus is always up to 500,000 things anytime he's doing one thing. And right now he's revealing himself and he's going to be kind of a walking parable of what it's like in the kingdom of God after Jesus resurrects from the grave. He's died, now he's alive, and he's reorienting their understanding of life in the kingdom of God. So he, he's alive and he reveals himself. But who's he revealing himself to? Well, look at verse 2. Simon Peter. Okay, we're going we're gonna to re- remember who Simon Peter is. He reveals himself to Thomas, called the twin. What happened last chapter? The doubter, Thomas. Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee. The one who said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus says, uh, I'm good. Said that to Nathaniel. I was there when you said that. I heard what you said. The sons of Zebedee, two guys that, and two other of his disciples were together, people that we don't even know about. And we don't, uh, we don't know who else was there. Verse 3, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So there's nothing here about uh, Simon Peter rebelling against God or that he has turned his back on his calling or anything like that. It is a bit perplexing. Um, you know, we don't know what their attitude is or anything like that, but at least they've got to eat and they return to their vocation and their skill. They are avid fishermen. This is not recreational fishing. Uh, this is the kind of fishing that you, you do and you do well so that you can eat and provide for your family. Well, they've got to do that. And so they go fishing and they're being faithful with what they're called to do and uh, they're catching nothing now this is now summarizing all of simon peter's life not just him but all the disciples thomas blows it unless i you know touch his hand unless i put my finger in his hand the nail scarred hand and and touch his side i'm not going to believe That's these kind of disciples. They say those kinds of things. And then Jesus shows up when the doors are locked and says, here I am. I'm right here revealing myself to you. Go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead, Thomas. Well, Peter said similar things like that. Rash things, silly things. Things that, that he regretted later when he told Jesus, though they all fall away. I mean, Peter is looking at Jesus saying, if every single one of them falls away out there, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to them, really? He says to Peter, is that right? He says, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, before the night is over, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, it's impossible. I'm not going to deny you three times. I'm not a denier. I'm faithful. I'm a preserver. I'm a truth teller. I can do it. Peter says, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Scripture says all the disciples said the same thing. They were all confident in their ability, all confident in their willpower. And Peter says, I'm never going to deny you. And then he finds himself at this little bitty uh, shadowy fire with just a few people's little girl or whatever, and they ask him, are you a follower of Jesus when he's about to go to the cross? And he denies it. Not just in his head or in his heart or, you know, kind of 
writing it out on email or something like that, vocally, verbally proclaiming, I don't know him. And then he finds himself in front of another crowd just a few minutes later, and they're asking him, are you a disciple? And he says, no, I'm not a disciple. Have you ever been there? Have you done this? Yes, you have. Yes, you have. Have I? You're Googling your mind. Yes, you have. You have been there. You have been in front of a crowd and and been like this. Uh, No, I don't know the man. And he finds himself in front of a third crowd. Do you know him? And he starts to call down curses on himself and says, no, blankety blank, blank. I don't know him. I do not know this man. And then the rooster crows and his eyes lock with the one he just denied in his moment of greatest need for human companionship. And this, the cloud of despair starts to hover and descend upon Peter's heart. He said he would never deny him. And here Jesus needs him more than any other time for human companionship. He says, I'm not, I don't even know him. Now you might've been defriended on Facebook. And that might've hurt you, hurt your feelings. But you've never been betrayed like that. At a moment of your greatest suffering, a human friend say, I don't know him. He doesn't belong to me. I don't follow him. Jesus let Peter fall and fall hard. And small grace theology is when we have this idea that there is no room as a disciple for failure. Like failure is not an option. Weakness is not an option. Doubts are not an option. Frustration or confusion or helplessness. I'm never allowed to feel deserted. Never allowed to, to have that feeling. That's, that's never allowed. There's no room for that. Never allowed to feel like Paul felt when he asked God, take, take this challenge and this oppression away from me. And to hear God say, no, I'm going to increase the grace in your life so that you can say, his grace is sufficient for me. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. I mean, I grew up in, in a church context like many of you, um, where, where it, frustration and confusion was, was never allowed. You, you always went to a camp to get rid of that and, and made some huge radical rededication that you would next year rededicate that rededication and the next year rededicate that rededication and just in this, this constant cycle. Um, and maybe you, maybe you do that as well. Uh, you go to the camp or the moment or the vacation or that one church or that one experience where that's, that's where you're going to lay it all down and all the frustration and failure in your life is going to be gone. Or you're going to go find that particular leader and he's going to pray for you and that's it for you. Uh, frustration, failure, confusion, helplessness, gone. Uh, total victory and uh, total confidence from here on out. I'm sorry to break it to you, but Jesus is like, I'll see you in the morning. Um, I'll see you right back here. You're going to need me the next day. After that great experience, as good as those are, you're going to need me. I'm going to let you fall. I'm going to let you fail. I'm going to let you, I'm going to let you fish all night long and catch nothing. I mean, there are times in our lives where we are going to faithfully fish all night long and catch nothing. And we need to have that understanding. We need to have that category in our minds. It's not that they are rebelling against God or turning their back on God. They're fishing. And Jesus is saying, not yet. 
you will catch fish, but not tonight. Scripture says weeping remains for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Well, we want the joy to come in the morning, but we don't want the weeping at night. And this is not how it works in the kingdom. God does let us fail. Jesus lets us fail to show up and show his grace is sufficient. So these avid fishermen, they work all night long. They go all over wherever you're supposed to catch fish. This is before the GPS days. And they catch absolutely nothing. And that's got to be disheartening to the extraordinary because you're probably hungry while you're fishing and you're probably grumbling at each other. Well, I I said over there. I said in that little spot over there. And I said, well, I said over there. And so, I mean, they're probably maybe blaming each other. Who knows? They're frustrated. They're not really sure what's happening uh, and why they're not catching any fish. But notice what happens in the midst of their utter barrenness and failure. Jesus shows up. Look at verse 4. Just as day was breaking. Now, Jesus knows how to make an entrance, doesn't he? This is perfect. I mean, he just waits until the ending of the night to show up. I mean, as the sun's coming up, here the Son of God is on the shore showing up. It says, Jesus stood on the shore. There he is. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. If Jesus is there, they don't know that he's there. That often happens in our life as well. He's right there and we don't recognize him. He's right, he's aware. We don't see him. And this is grace. This is the, the, the kindergarten elementary definition of grace. Jesus showing up. He shows up anywhere and at any time in our lives, whether it's a challenge, challenging time or a confusing time or a time of celebration and Jesus shows up, that's Grace. Now, the showing up of Jesus was was not an insignificant thing to the apostles. Remember, for 40 days, he goes on a PR campaign like no leader ever has to show every single person that he is resurrected and alive. He is unashamed to show people his nail-scarred hands and his side and tell people very boldly, come and touch and see, Come, come and eat with me. I'm alive. I'm resurrected. I'm really here. I'm not a phantom. I'm not a ghost. When we talk about the gospel, we often uh, talk about 1 Corinthians 15. But notice that in 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul describes the gospel, he's very clear about the appearing of Jesus for these 40 days. When he says, I preached the gospel, he says, I reminded you that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried, that means he went into the tomb, the the suffering for sin was over, and he went into the tomb, a dead man. That he was raised on the third day. If you don't believe he was raised on the third day, you're not a Christian. We believe here, we we really believe, as, as followers of Jesus, he is alive today. He is resurrected. He's at the the right hand of the Father, alive today. But then he goes on to say, and that he appeared to Peter and to the twelve. And he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive. And then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me. So he he died, he was buried, he rose again, and then he appeared, and then he appeared, and then he appeared, and then he appeared, and then he appeared. 
And then he appeared in front of 500 people. In, in fact, when he rose from the grave, do you remember that, that one gospel that mentions that the graves were opened and several people started to walk around Jerusalem that were dead? Just kind of a foretaste. This is at the, the entrance of resurrection life that Jesus gives. He starts walking around Jerusalem alive and all these dead relatives do too. He, he brings resurrection and when he appears, it's all grace. Now he does this at the beach as a foretaste and as a parable of what he's going to do to the whole church when he ascends on high and pours his spirit out. He promised his disciples that I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. I, the one that you walked with, the one that taught you, the one that you ate with, you sang with, you laughed with, the one that you understood the kingdom of God through, I'm going to come to you. I will come to you. Not just an idea, a thought, a teaching. I personally will come through the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm going to pour my life out on the church and spiritually indwell you in a way that the people of God had never experienced before. In Matthew 28, we get a taste of this. Jesus is up on a mountain and he's instructing his disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. In other words, I'm, I'm the one that has authority over every nation, over every apartment complex, over every classroom, over every family, over every holiday get together that you're gonna, you're gonna be at. I have authority over all of those people. Therefore, go. And tell them the gospel. Make disciples of all nations. Convert, see them converted. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Make new converts and grow them up in, in scripture. And then he says, and behold. And he puts the behold right here at the end. Behold. In other words, okay, lean forward here and grab hold of this because you can't do this on your own. He says, behold, I am with you. I am with you always to the end of the age. That's what he's showing his disciples. This is how life in the kingdom is going to operate. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to go before you. That Jesus is on the shore of, of this beach, but he's communicating to his disciples, I'm going to go before you. I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I'm not going to leave the mission up to you. I'm going to still lead the mission. I'm still going to be in head, at the head of the church. I'm still going to be in charge. I'm still going to direct and guide you and help you. Don't forget, I'm here and I'm present. Well, look what he does when he shows up. We could go around the room and talk about the grace that comes into our life when Jesus shows up. And it's the same right here. He starts to reverse everything. He starts to change things. His presence changes things. So what does he reverse? What does he reverse? Let's look at this very carefully. Look at verse 4. The first thing that he reverses is their darkness. So the day was breaking, and Jesus stood on the shore. They don't know it's Jesus. And he says to them, children, do you have any fish? That might have been an annoying question to a bunch of fishermen who fished all night long. But it might have been a helpful question. Who knows? I mean, 
why not? Why not try another option? If somebody on the shore was successful, we don't know. And, and they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. Again, it, it could have been that they just said, well, we'll just give it a shot because maybe this guy was successful. Um, maybe they see the campfire. He's already cooking fish. So uh, might as well uh, use the option of somebody that's successful. Or they might have remembered something previous. In their calling to be disciples, the exact same story happened in their calling to become disciples. They, they fished all night long. They caught nothing. Jesus says, cast over here. They cast. Suddenly their nets begin to break. The boats begin to, sh- to sink. Peter's like, get away from me. I told you don't. I, I told you I wouldn't, I wouldn't you know, cast the net. I didn't want to embarrass you, but get away from me. You are God. And he says, from now on, you're going to be fishing men. You see how many fish are flapping around? You see the boat sinking? That's what it's going to be like in life in the kingdom. You're going to start fishing for men and seeing people caught and discipled. Well, here he's, he's doing the same thing. He's guiding them. He's saying, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. He's, he's directing them. And they're going to discover that when Jesus directs them, he truly is the light of the world. He is the eyes. He is the ears. He is the head. He is the brains. We're not the brains of the church. By the church, I mean the followers of of Christ, but I also mean the local church. Jesus is the eyes and ears of the organization. He leads the church. That's why scripture says he's the head of the church because Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We need light. Otherwise, we'll just walk in darkness and fish all night long. We, we, will, we will fish all night long for many, many days and catch nothing without the light of the world. And here Jesus is saying, I'll direct you. I'll bring light and I'll reverse your darkness. Well, look at what else he reverses. He reverses their hopelessness. Look at verse 7. That disciple whom Jesus loved, therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. John is always uh, the first to, to recognize things, and Peter's often the first to act on things. So the disciple whom Jesus loves says, it's the Lord. He recognizes it's Jesus. It's, it's the quantity of fish that they are now hauling in this large quantity whenever they simply obeyed the direction of Jesus that they see Jesus. Oh, this is surely Jesus who's giving us this command. No human could do this, but he's done this for us before as well. Surely this is Jesus. They start hauling in this fish. John's like, it's Jesus. It's the Lord. And when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he does something that is just comical. He put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea so he you know he gets dressed for the occasion because he didn't want to come just kind of raggedy and scraggly and then he throws himself into the sea and he starts swimming to Jesus and if you were there you would have just laughed your head off what i mean this is comedy this is we're supposed to look at this and say oh, here he goes here goes peter Always emotion, always excitement, always um, 
ready, fire, aim kind of a guy. And here he goes, jumping into the, jumping into the water, hundred yards away, because John says, it's the Lord. Threw himself into the sea. And then it says in verse 8, The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but about a hundred yards off. Now remember, this is, this is the context in which Peter was first called to Jesus. Peter remembered all the foibles that he ever told Jesus. Master, we toiled all night long and caught nothing. But at your command, I will cast my net on this side. And the boat began to sink. And in that moment, he said, get away from me. And Jesus says, I'm not going to get away from you. I'm going to build my church through you. Many of you have said that to God. Just get away from me. You're not going to use me. You'll use him. You'll surely use her. But you're not going to use me. And Jesus says, away with that. I'm going to use you. I'm going to catch people through you. Jesus remembers, I mean, Paul remembers the original calling that Jesus had on his life and his words, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to be catching men. And I think that when he threw himself into the sea on that day, it was because of hope. Thomas had his time with Jesus. And Peter had seen him resurrected. But have you ever had an argument with somebody and you could be after the argument in the same room together, maybe even eating a meal together, but you feel like that person's about a hundred yards away? In this situation, I think that's the case with Peter. Not only that, I think his dream of ever leading the church is a hundred yards away. But thankfully... A hundred yards is swimming distance. And he recognizes it. And he just jumps in. He just goes for it. He doesn't care what his friends think. He only cared what Jesus thought. And I can imagine Jesus right there on the shore the minute Peter jumps off the boat just laughing and just enjoying watching him flap around in the water and swim to him because he has in mind a restored Peter. He is going to reinstate him and give his calling back and give that dream back and bring that relationship and that restored relationship back. Next week we'll see he's going to have that conversation with Peter and Peter's anticipating this and he is just going after Jesus because he's reversing the hopelessness in his heart and he's restoring the hope that he's going to build the church and he's going to use even me. Have you ever wondered that about yourself? Can he use me? Yes, he can use you. Is he far from me? No, he's not. He's not even a hundred yards from you. He's right here in front of you saying, I'm going to use you. I'm going to reverse the darkness in your heart and I'm going to give you hope because I'm the light of the world and my presence overcomes anything that you've done in your past or anything that you've done in your present or anything you're afraid of doing in your future. Well, he reverses not only Peter's darkness, but their darkness. And look what else he reverses, their inability. Things they can't do and things you and I can't do, we can do with Jesus. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. So 
Jesus is the savior of the world and the creator of fish and the creator of fire and the creator of charcoal and the creator of bread. And he's bringing all this stuff together and he's making them breakfast. I mean, this is the uncreated God entering into his creation, enjoying his very creation, and there laying out fish for them and bread to serve them. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught, which is also kind of comical. They didn't catch a thing all night long. It was only by simply following Jesus that they catch anything. But when they simply follow Jesus... I mean, this is maturity. Maturity is not graduating beyond simply trusting Jesus. Maturity is, wow, even the things I used to be good at, I can't do at all without Jesus now. I mean, that's discipleship. That's maturity in the Christian life. Now, they need Jesus for everything. Peter needs Jesus for every single thing. And here he says, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Well, they caught it because of Jesus. Well, Jesus says, I know you caught it because of me, but I'm going to reward you based on what I do in you and through you, not what you do on your own. And so Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full, full of large fish, 153 of them. So, I mean, people speculate about what does this mean, 153 fish? Does it mean like nations and countries and people groups and all this stuff. And I just think it means, A, it's a lot of fish. Okay, it's 153 fish. I mean, if you are an avid fisherman, you like to count up what you catch and you like to measure what you catch and all that stuff, same here. They're so amazed and so stoked at the power of Jesus in their lives. They're counting it up. I mean, numbers don't tell the whole story, but numbers matter. Numbers do tell some of the story, and they're telling some of the story right here. 153, and notice, although there were so many, the net was not torn. There's something that Jesus is teaching them. If you simply trust me, if you simply obey me, you're going to be fruitful. I'm going to guide you and direct you. And, and you're gonna, you're gonna bear a lot of fruit. You're gonna be a fisher of men and, and be very fruitful. And while you're fruitful, you're not gonna wear yourself out. I mean, at, when we think about being radical and giving our all for God, scripture teaches that, that we need to do that. But scripture also teaches that while we're radical for Him, we're restful at the same time. There is that, Tension. Oh, you're going to be fruitful. You're, you're going to see 153 fish in a net, but the net's not going to be torn. You're not going to break under the pressure if we follow him, simply trusting in him. I read this book one time where um, it was a kind of a prayer book, prayer for the most in, pray for the most influential people in the United States, and they're like Katie Couric and... This is an old book, so Katie Couric was, I think, really influential at the time. Sorry, Katie fans. Um, and Tom Cruise and all these political leaders and things like that. And it was kind of, it kind of gave you this idea that, you know, if, if God catches those people, then the kingdom of God is going to advance forward. So we should pray for, for these people. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but that's just, that's just not the model of scripture. The model of scripture is God takes uneducated, common people and 
fills them with the boldness of his spirit and then astonishes the masses because they were common, not because they were great or came from high pedigree or had this great skill or something like that. It's because, because they were common. Like Simon Cowell, he looks for the X factor. Oh, he does, and so does the world, but that's not what God looks for. He just looks for childlike faith and trust, and if you've got that, that's the X factor with God. That's, that's what he's looking for. And notice the lastly, he changes their perspective. He reverses their perspective. Good verse 12. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. I just have to stop right there and just be amazed for just a moment at the reality that the creator of the universe, the uncreated God, enjoys breakfast. Okay? Don't over-spiritualize that. If this happened in... If this happened in the 21st century, if he showed up at your kitchen, he'd say, do you have any crunch berries? <laughs> breakfast. Something we take is for granted. I mean, you say, well, I'm not a breakfast person. Well, if Jesus invited you to breakfast, you would become a breakfast person. You would write books and theologies on the doctrine of breakfast because here the Son of God is inviting you to eat breakfast with him and he made the breakfast. He's, he cooked them breakfast. Well, the point is not breakfast. The point is fellowship and restored fellowship. But he says, come, come and have breakfast. Eat with me. Come right now. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? And they knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took bread and he gave it to them. And so with the fish. And this was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. So he's teaching them right now. I am going to serve you. I'm in the place of serving you and not the other way around, which is another thing that Peter got wrong so many times. He'd often try to put himself outside of the place of being served by Jesus and serving Jesus. Um, and, 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 well, no, Jesus, you know, we, we should do this and we should go here and, and never will you wash my uh, feet. And Jesus, unless you let me wash your feet, you can have none of me. Oh, okay, I got you. I'm, I'm, I'm letting you serve me. I am at the place of receiving from you. The one who serves gets the glory. And Jesus is the one who's going to serve the church. J- not just then, but right now. He's serving the church. He's serving you. Jesus is serving you. He's the one serving you. He's the one pouring mercy out upon you and grace out upon you. And the biggest grace that he gives to us right now, and he doesn't do this a hundred yards from us that we have to swim to, he does it right now, is an invitation to come. Could there be a more powerful word spoken by the Son of God who we've all abandoned and walked away from than the words, Despite your failure, come. Come to me. That's Matthew 11. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. Well, what if, what if I labor and are heavy laden because of my sin? Come to me, and I will give you rest. Well, is God concerned about this thing that I'm laden with and, and, and is oppressive to me? Yes. He says, take my yoke upon you. In other words, 
join me on my mission and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is life in the kingdom. Go out and catch a ton of fish and come in and rest. And go out and catch a ton of fish and come in and rest. I'm here for you, and I'm not going to leave you. I started this book. Uh, oh, what's the name of this book? Dane Orland's uh, Defiant Grace. I think that's the name of it. Um, Dane Orland just, just came out. It's a great book. Here's how he opens up his book. He says, It's time to enjoy grace anew. Not the decaffeinated grace that pats us on the hand, ignores our deepest rebellions, and doesn't change us but the high-octane grace that takes our conscience by the scruff of the neck and breathes new life into us with a pardon so scandalous that we cannot help but be changed. It's time to blow aside the hazy cloud of condemnation that hangs over us throughout the day with the strong wind of gospel grace. You are not under law, but under grace. Jesus is real. Grace is defiant. Life is short. Risk is good. I mean, I think that's a great summary of this this whole chapter. The disciples are like, he's real. And grace is defiant. And this life is short. And risk is good. And I can trust in his grace. He reverses their perspective. Let's pray together. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.